This, this is going to be a, kind of a, a one-off talk. Um, you know, we've wrapped up the Ecclesia series. We've got Advent looming. We've got Thanksgiving this week. Um, but I'm not going to be talking about Thanksgiving stuff. <laughs> this one's going to be probably different than a lot. I, I know I often joke and make pop culture references and, and, and things, and, and there's not going to be much of that uh, today. Uh, if anything, I, I think that hopefully this is going to be just a sobering reminder to us about the, the charge before us, the, the work that we have to do and why we have to do it. I'm not sure if people here are familiar with the, the Hillsborough disaster. Anybody here at all? Hillsborough, yeah, people from the UK probably are. Um, I want to talk about this with, with great seriousness and respect. Um, I, I, I pause on illustrations like this because this, this was a, a tragedy that, that fell upon um, people, and, and it's, it's nothing to make light of. And so I, I really want to do it with respect and, and, and honor for what happened. Uh, so those of us who hadn't heard it, um, it came to my attention several years ago, and, and it really left a, a great impression on me. Um, I think we're, we're prone to call things a tragedy, and um, this one really stands out to me. With all the tragedies that we have, with all the, the problems we have, this one stands out to me. I was coming back from Russia a few weeks back, and I was still praying about this topic uh, of evangelism. I was still praying about the things that we were talking about while we were in Russia, how to do evangelism effectively, what, what to be mindful of as we do it in those contexts. And I was struck by the difference um, in Christianity in a faithful life here and there. You know, the, the difference that a Christian walk looks like in America and what it looks like in Russia, the difference that a, a Christian walk looks like here where we have the white suburban middle class, you know, taking the trumpet of the gospel, and those in, in third world countries or, or those even just further away who don't have the same things that we have. You know, what does a, a drink of water mean to us here straight out of the faucet, and what does it mean to a man set adrift on a boat, you know? The difference in that idea is, is huge and vast, but you could argue it's the same exact thing. We need water. We, we, need, we need to be hydrated. We need to survive. We need liquid to stay here. But I'm going to argue with you that glass of water means a whole lot more to a man set adrift on an ocean than it means to us here. It's just as valuable. It's just as life-giving. But that guy is going to appreciate it a whole lot more than what we do. It's continued life. It's refreshment. But you, when you know that you need it, when you know that this is your hope, when you know that I need this for my tomorrow, and I don't know if I can get more, you really appreciate that. We have the gospel in this nation. Most of us know it by heart. We have freedom to worship. We have the luxury to speak truth to power. We have the encouragement even to speak the gospel in the darkest corners that we can find. I've preached a sermon on this idea before that I fear that we get fat at the banqueting table right, that we pull up to the banqueting table of, of, of the Lamb's Feast, and we just feast, <laughs> and we stay in one place, and we get lethargic then, you know, you, you get the, the turkey drowsiness sets in, and, and we don't do much with it, because look, there's a whole feast here for me, and, and what should I do but eat, and enjoy myself, and eat, drink, and, and be merry, you know, this is what, what today's for. We're invited to this wedding feast, we've plopped ourselves down, and we're not budging, and so as I was flying back from Russia, in prayer, I thought about all that I'd seen and experienced, and I remembered this horrible tra tragedy, the Hillsborough disaster. And I didn't know if it was the Lord or myself or where it was, but I, I prayed through this. And so for those of us who don't know, on April 15th, 1989, there was a soccer match, football, whatever you want to call it, between Liverpool and Nottingham Forest. And before this match got really underway, this tragedy claimed 96 lives and injured 766 people. So unlike terrorist attacks or mass shootings, which are the tragedies we often think about, um, there was no malice here. There was no intent by any individual or organization to harm anybody when they set out. Everybody just wanted to see a soccer match. They came out to support their team. They came out to have a good time. 96 people died and 766 were injured. The great crush at the football stadium is devastating. It was avoidable. The problem was crowd-related. People surging forward had no idea what was going on. What happened was they were getting people through these 60 turnstiles, thousands and thousands of people coming through, and they led them into a pen. And the match just started off, and it was at 3 o'clock, 
and people were streaming in. At 3.04, there was somebody who took a shot on the goal, and the crowd surged forward trying to see what happened. And the people in the back pushed against those in the beginning, and there was no opening up front. The fence was closed off, and people were crushed where they were standing. And this is unfortunately well documented. There's videos, there's photos, there's horrible, horrible ways that you can understand and see what happened here. But they stopped the match at 3.05 with fans climbing the fences trying to escape. People died of asphyxiation where they were standing. They were crushed all around. The police, the ambulances were overwhelmed. I've got a photo of, actually this, this is one thing that I, I thought illustrated it well. You know, it's the aftermath, people pulling down fences and, and barricades and, and, and all these things. There, there's horrible things, but I, I don't want this to be gruesome, but it's sobering to remember that this is a tragedy. This was avoidable. There was no ill intent. There was no malice here. The victims were aged 10 to 67 years old. They were just going for a game. They paid for their tickets. They were excited to cheer on their team, and lives were just shifted on that point. It's a heart-wrenching tragedy. It, it, it doesn't grip my heart in the same way that evil does. Evil grips me in such a way that I want to see justice. I want to see vengeance. This, it, it's just a shame. It, it's just, it's avoidable. It, it's a tragedy. It's preventable. And as I was thinking about this and praying about this on my way back from Russia, I was greatly troubled by this. And I asked God what he was saying. And he showed me that so many of the people that I just saw were like the people in the front of this tragedy pressed up against the fence. They, they had no way of going back. They had no way of going forward. They were stuck where they were at, dying where they stood. The cost that, that was being charged to them, the, the, the problem was they were, they were being killed where they were, and they could see things, they understood things, but they were stuck. And I was flying back, I was flying home, to seeing people who were you know, getting excited about seeing a soccer game, those people in the back. People in the back who have no idea about the tragedy going on just feet away from them. People, whenever we're, we're, we're blind, we're oblivious to what we can, can cause. Like, I just want to see the game better, so I just, I just push forward a little bit. And everybody pushes forward just a little bit, and the people in front just get squeezed and squeezed until there's nothing left. So that in itself is not a rebuke. It's not saying that those people in the back did anything wrong, Right? There's no ill will, there's no malice that was intended by the people in the back who just wanted to understand why did the crowd just shout? What happened in this game that I paid to go see that I'm, I'm trying to get through this crowd? I, something's happening, I want to see what it is. There's no, there's no evil in their hearts. They're just trying to get a good look at what's happening. There's no criminal intent, no malice. Our topic today is bearing the fruit of repentance. Bearing the fruit of repentance. This is the, the charge laid by John the Baptist at the feet of the Pharisees and the Sadducees who came to be baptized by his hand. It might seem a bit strange, but this is going to be an evangelical call in its nature. I want to talk about the great stakes of what, why we do this thing that we do. Why we gather in one place. Why we do Advent. Why we pray together. Why we share the gospel. Why we remind ourselves about these truths that we already know. What, what are the great stakes of this thing that we're, we're doing? I don't talk about this often because there's so many attractive things about the kingdom of God that I feel like we're, we're pulled towards that. We understand the glory of God. We want to see the glory of God. He's beautiful. There's wonderful things for us. There's the gifts which are exciting to use. You know, there's all these wonderful things that, that pull us forward. And I think that we forget about the stakes of this life that we live. I think that's natural, but we need to be reminded because you hear Jesus' words, and you see who he is, and there's this part of my soul that cries out, that's my God. I recognize him, and it's good. And that's where I'm at today, but I didn't always start in that place. I started off being terrified of hell. I started off being terrified of death and understanding that the wages of my sin were worthy of nothing else. Our theology, our understanding, our hope, is tied to our actions. I want you to really don't think that this is just loose words, okay? Our understanding, our hopes are tied to our actions. Those things that we understand about God, those things that we hope for, we're going to be faithful to carry those things out. 
If I don't have an understanding that hell is real, if I don't have an understanding that people need to be saved, if I don't have an understanding that there are real consequences to our actions, we act very differently. If we hope for things that we think are unobtainable, if we hope for things that, that seem small, we act accordingly. So we have to know that the way that we come into this gospel, the way that we understand the gospel, the way we understand who God is and what he's doing, the church is going to begin to look very different from how you think it might or how it should or how it could. When we approach our neighbor, it's the overflow of what we believe. It's the overflow of what we value and what we hope for, or it's false. Maybe we've been a part of some programs before where you don't really buy into it. We don't really know that we believe this thing with every fiber of my being. I don't know that it's really worth it. Is my discomfort in sharing the gospel worth it to talk to my neighbor about the gospel? Because do I really believe that they need to be saved? Do I really believe that they need to hear this gospel as if a matter of life and death depends on it? Or is it just okay just to say, yeah, you're, you're probably okay as you are. It, 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 your sins are probably not that bad. So yeah, I, I don't really need to mention this truth to you. The things that are at stake, the things that we believe, the things we hope for, our actions will betray them. Who's my neighbor? Do I see them as my neighbor? Do I see them as somebody worth saving? Somebody that needs saving? Who do we approach? When Jesus walked this earth, he told his disciples, first go to the lost sheep of Israel. We talked about the, the house of prayer and what we talked about last week, acknowledging the house of prayer, is that it was a house of prayer for all nations, particularly for those outside. How Christ protected it and purified it. But his ministry was for Israel. And we have already this, this, this question, who's going to do this thing? Who does he send out? Who are we called to? Who do we love? Who do we acknowledge? Because the thing is, we could go anywhere. And you could say anything to anybody. We could go to Russia. We could go to South America. We could go to Central America. We could go to Africa. You could go next door. Thinking about the Hillsborough tragedy, you could go to the people in the front of the line. Go to the people in the back of the line. How do we evangelize? How do we call them out? If you go to the back of that line in that Hillsborough tragedy, you've got to tell people, stop pressing in. You have to tell them, don't go down this way. Try to go another way. If you're in the front, you're working for somebody to get breath in their lungs. You have to cut fences. It's very different work. Do we know the work that we're called to? Do we approach people that are like us or people unlike us, where we're comfortable, where they're comfortable? those who are close to us or those who are far. And I'm not saying that any of this is right or wrong, but I'm saying that the way that we work, do we understand the stakes that are played no matter where we are? Or have we lulled ourselves into a sense of security and comfort? I think John the Baptist and Jonah tell us well about this. These are two prophets, two prophets who, who both were working to turn people back to God. Jonah was working uh, unfortunately, with people that he hated. <laughs> he was called to Nineveh, and he did not like the Ninevites at all. In fact, his argument to God when he was called to give this message, this call to repentance to the Ninevites was, God, I know your character, and if they hear this message, they're going to turn from their sins, and then you won't punish them. <laughs> that, was his, that was his message. That was his thought was, you're so good, and this message is so compelling and I want to see them turn. I want to see them burn. I, I want to see the, the destruction come. And John the Baptist, he had this message of repentance, calling the people to it. He saw the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming. And what he said to them was, who told you to flee the coming wrath? <laughs> who told you? Who warned you? Because God was going to get you, but now you're here. They had this anger in them. They had this desire to see justice come and touch they each of them hit the stumbling block. I love that they both had such confidence in God's character and in the power of the message that these things were a foregone conclusion. And I feel like we have forgotten the foregone conclusion of some of these things. We forget the stakes that are at play. It was, it was understood to them. They, they, they understood, well, of course destruction's coming. Well, of course the wages of your sin is death. Well, of course, this is the consequence for the life that you're living. And I feel like we as the church today in America often forget what is at stake. I, Josh Pavel, often forget what is at stake. 
that these are not just loose words, but that there is a, a real, real trap lying before us, that sin will lead us to death. And this is a tragedy that, that's befalling our nation. This is a tragedy for our friends and for our neighbors, people that we claim to care about, people that we do love. And yet we've allowed this great divorce, we've allowed this separation between the things that we say we value, the, th the things that we say we understand, the words of the scriptures itself, and how we end up treating our neighbors. Who warned you? Christ tells us, though, that whenever the, the worst sinner comes to a saving knowledge, the angels rejoice. See, John the Baptist and, and, and Jonah, they, they had it wrong in that extent. They had this gospel message, but they didn't have in their hearts Christ's love. They understood, this, they understood what was at play. They understood the severity of sin, but they missed what Christ was telling us. This is always, always for his glory. It's never about you yourself. It's never about them even. It's about the fact that this is a greater story being told. Last week, to wrap up Ecclesia, I, I shared these passages from Isaiah and Jeremiah about the house of prayer. And I shared in Matthew how Christ rebuked the money changers and drove them out. Remember this, folks. God gave his name to the house of prayer because it was for all nations, not just Israel. It was for the outcasts, the eunuchs who had no legacy, those who saw God and had hope. But those Israelites who treated with disdain, those Israelites who were unfaithful to the charge put before them, they were cast out from that place. They were led to destruction. They found themselves outside even when they were in the middle. When the Lord called me to be a pastor, he used this passage out of Jeremiah 15. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. If you repent, I will restore you that you may serve me. If you utter worthy, not worthless words, you will be my spokesman. Let this people turn to you, but you must not turn to them. I will make you a wall to this people, a fortified wall of bronze. They will fight against you, but, you will, but will not overcome you. For I am with you to rescue and save you, declares the Lord. I will save you from the hands of the wicked and deliver you from the grasp of the cruel. The Lord called me with these verses. And what always stuck with me was how contingent this is. If you repent, I will restore you. If you utter worthy, not worthless words, you'll be my spokesman. How many loose words do we spend? How many loose words do we spend that, that are just, I don't know, stroking ego? How many loose words do we spend that, that are, are dancing around the stakes that we say we understand and that we understand are in play when we talk about the gospel and that we're being saved from something? How many words have I spoken that are worthless compared to how many I've spoken that are worthy? The, 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 the call that I have before me personally is to make sure that I am giving God's word its due space, its due time, that we remember that this is what he's called us to. This is what he's called us about. When the people were being led to the promised land, they were led between two mountains, Mount Grism and Mount Evil. In Deuteronomy 11, we see this. See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you obey the commands of the Lord your God that I'm giving you today. The curse, if you disobey the commands of the Lord your God and turn from the way that I command you today by following other gods, which you've not known. When the Lord your God has brought you into the land you are entering to possess, you are to proclaim on Mount Gerizim the blessings, and on Mount Evil the curses. As you know, these mountains are across the Jordan westward towards the setting sun near the great trees of Morah, in the territory of those Canaanites living in the, in the Arabah, in the vicinity of Gilgal, you're about to cross the Jordan to enter and take possession of the land the Lord your God is giving you. When you've taken it over and are living there, be sure that you obey all the decrees and laws I'm setting before you today. They crossed over into this new land. They, they were going into the promise. They were going to have this rich life, the land flowing with milk and honey. And he's saying, the, there's two things you're going to have to walk between. And remember that always. Your entrance is framed between these ideas, if you obey and if you disobey. And we want to think that we can just remain neutral. <laughs> like, do we have to worry about the blessings and or the curses? Like, if, if we're only worried about one, 
do we even have to talk about the other one? Like, I want to be drawn towards the blessings, and let's forget about the curses, you know? Or if I'm just good enough, maybe I can just stay right here in this middle line, like, like neutral, like Switzerland, and just stay on this spot and say, you know, the good stuff is for, like, those really, really good people, and the bad stuff is for, like, those really, really bad people. But, you know, you know a bell curve. Like, everybody in the middle, that 80% of us in the middle, we'll be fine. You know, maybe we don't have the full blessings and maybe we don't have the curses, but we're okay. We'll just stand here. But Christ wasn't saying this middle part here, this is where you need to be. He was saying it's, it's one or the other. When you enter in this land, you have to know these mountains. This is what is prophesied over you. It's not to be neutral and to just try to make it through in this land. It's not trying to make your own life whatever it can be. The whole entrance into the promised land the richness of God is framed by these two ideas. I think we see great success in treading water, remaining neutral. As we know, though, lukewarm gets spit out of his mouth. I think that that Hillsborough tragedy, that disaster is like our world today. You know, we're, we're drawn to the, to the spectacle. We're, we're drawn to the show we want to enjoy ourselves. We want to be in this place where exciting things are happening. You know, we know that this is a fun place to be. We've, we're invested. We've paid for our tickets. We're in good company. Surely the people in charge are sufficient. I really want to see this game. really want to enjoy myself. Last week we read the words from Isaiah 56. Come, each one cries. Let me get wine. Let us drink our fill of beer. Tomorrow will be like today or even far better. We don't remember the stakes that are at play. We don't understand that, that just ahead of us, there could be tragedy and disaster, that I could meet my end through no ill intent of those people around me, with no warning shot, with nobody declaring that, be careful. Do we remember the consequences that are around us daily? How do we escape? Where are we in this story? Where are we as individuals? Are we the, where are we as the church? Where are we as evangelists? Are we the crazy people outside the stadium prophesying death to those who walk through the turnstiles? You see them at every game you go to. People have these signs, turn or burn, you know, and they're, they're crying out to the, this crowd who's going in just to watch a football game. You know, be aware. <laughs> Your sin has consequence. And what happens to every thousands of people walking past those signs? Oh, not now. It's Saturday. I'll worry about that tomorrow at church. You just walk by those signs and you think, well, I'm a Christian. You know, those signs aren't for me. Or you think, that's just a crazy, loony Christian person. I don't need to worry about that. We just walk past those, these people giving out these warnings and reminding us. And I don't think it's a very effective means of evangelism. I'm not, I'm not going to be out there with a the sign myself because do you know how hard it is to attract somebody away from something that they're going to for fun? The, the amount of spectacle we need to do in the United States, and you probably know this from looking at a lot of churches, the amount of effort you have to put on presentation to pull somebody away when they don't know that they are facing death. If you've got somebody walking into a football game for their team, their championship game, call it, and you're saying, hey, I got tickets to a concert. Uh, okay, no, <laughs> I'm going to see this game. Well, here, I'll, I'll give you $500 if you don't go into that game. I want to go to this game. You know, how, how, they're not even going to give you the time of day. They're not going to listen to your pitch because they're going to that game. The amount of spectacle you need to pull somebody away from something that they're drawn into is often where we find ourselves in America. Do we remember the stakes? Do we understand it? And then you go to places where it seems like maybe it's already too late. People are already dying. They've already lost hope. They're already stuck in a place. Their sin has already claimed people around them. And they've got despair. And they've got anger. And they've got envy. And they've got jealousy. And they're looking around them, just bitterness. That how did I get into this place? Where's God's goodness for me here? All I see around me is death and sin and destruction. And then you come in there and you're on the other side of the fence. You're saying, get out, get out. They're like, I am stuck here. I am stuck here dying. Where were you a week ago? Where were you before? I think that we, as the church, find ourselves often struggling with this. The carrot or the stick. I see this great pendulum that, that swings back and forth. Like I said before, I, I came to, to the first time I understood the gospel because I was terrified of death and hell. 
and I knew that I deserved punishment for my sins. I didn't have to be told I was a sinner. I knew it. I knew it. I felt the weight of my sin, and I felt that, that distance and that darkness, and I knew that I didn't want to be that way. My understanding of the coming wrath kept me through the turn away from my faith of my parents. And I think I told you this story before. I, I turned away from the faith that my parents had, and hopefully you understand, I turned back. But I had a season where I did not consider myself a Christian, truly. When I came back, I was again terrified because I knew of the scriptures, what it says in Hebrews 6. It's impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. Because to their loss, they're crucifying the Son of God all over again, subjecting him to public disgrace. And knowing that I had been a Christian, knowing that I professed that Jesus was my Savior, and knowing that I said, I am not a Christian, and I turned away, I thought my fate was sealed. And I thought truly, truly, I believed I was going to hell. Even though I believed, and even though I saw the goodness of God, I believed I was going to hell. And you know what my prayer was? Was that, God, I know this is true. I know your word is right. And if my life is only going to be a warning sign to those people who can see it, then I'm going to be a warning sign. Even if I am damned to hell myself, I will still speak the gospel so that those who see me might know that there's still life for them if they can turn around. They can still repent from their sins. They can still find their way back. You can damn me to hell, but I'm still going to speak the gospel. That was my prayer. <laughs> and I meant every word of it. And I still do. My theology has shifted. I don't, <laughs> I don't believe I'm, I'm damned to hell. I don't believe that that's my lot in life anymore. I, I understand more of God's mercy and his love and how these things work out. But I had such a conviction about what was worthy of my sins the consequence of people not knowing the gospel. I just said, if I'm a warning, let me be a warning. Because it matters. Because it matters. So the pendulum swings. <laughs> Avoid hell. But now I, I do see God. Christ is beautiful, and he's loving, and he's forgiving, he's merciful. And he calls it justice. And mercy triumphs over justice. And he calls it this. It's so sweet. And oh, my sweet, sweet Savior. You know, we sing these worship songs. And my heart is caught up in the beauty and the glory and the hope of this. And we look at the words of Christ in John 14. And I love this. This is so important for us to hear. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house has many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. I like the NASB for this, because it says, In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If it weren't so, I would have told you. His understanding is, this is the basic stuff. Of course you know this, right? Of course you know there's a place in heaven for you. Like, do I have to tell you that? Like, the assumption is there's a place for you. The assumption is that that's your home. Like to Jesus, that it's second nature. Of course there's a place for you. If it weren't the case, I, I would have told you that. But I don't, in the lack of my words, if I don't have to clarify this, you know God's character well enough, don't you, to know that there's a place for you? That, is, that tells me so much about Christ's great confidence, not like Jonah and John the Baptist, about the power of sin and death. That's what Jonah and John knew. They knew the destructive power of sin. Jesus, what he knew intrinsically was the Father's great love for you. What he knew intrinsically was that there's a place for you in heaven. They come from their own understandings. Do you see that? Like we were talking about? Jonah and John the Baptist, they had an understanding because they knew sin. The pendulum swings. Jesus knew the Father. And he knew his great love for his creation. He knew that he made a way. That was his great hope. So the pendulum swings from hell and death and fear and destruction and loss to, of course, God's great love is for you. Of course he has you a home for you here. Carrot or stick. Avoid hell or be drawn to the creator. In church, we tend to either or this. We make this one or the other. 
because we do a really bad job expressing these two things at the same time. The both and is extremely hard. And our characterization of God, our understanding of theology, our hopes, our methods, it tends to follow. And we either end up with a, a teddy bear Jesus with, who has arms outstretched, suffering a thousand wrongs and never speaking a word of rebuke. Or we get a distant, stern father who's angry, who delights in punishing sinners. We tend to pick and choose scriptures that support that understanding then we present to the world this fractured understanding of the gospel. And the world sees this and they just think, I don't even understand what you're talking about. Jesus is going to save me from his father who wants to kill me? Like that, this, this makes no sense. You know, how can these be the same God? How can this be the same message? How can you tell me that God's justice demands that I die and yet God's forgiveness is going to make a place for me where I can live? And it, it's this fractured understanding that the world is confused by, and I'll say justifiably so, because I think that we ourselves are fractured and confused on this. If we were to try to evangelize to the people at the back, like I was saying, my, my first pass on this sermon was that God wanted to chastise us for being a middle-class suburban attraction model, because I was being convicted of that myself, coming from a place where evangelism is hard. But as I sat before God, that never settled. There's not conviction to those people in the back with this tragedy. The people in the back of the crowd were doing nothing wrong. They just wanted to see their game. There, there wasn't this, this rebuke of, of their, their evil, wicked ways. There wasn't this fact that it, it was just a, a cry. To, do you realize how hard that is? <laughs> do you realize how expensive that work is in America to try to draw somebody to Christ, to try to pull them away from the wealth that they have themselves, to try to, to get their attention off of themselves, the selfishness, the greed, the lust, to try to get that attention off of themselves before they have felt the sting of their own sin. It takes a, a real work of conviction or a real work of attraction to, to break somebody out of that, that mold that they found themselves in. It's like we're playing with, with house money in this idea. This is a gambling reference, I know, but the idea is that the house, the casino, they loan you a little bit of money so that you have something to play with, to get you hooked. We play with house money in America. We play with worldly wealth in America. We have all this capability in America. We have all the, the time that we think we need in America. Our lives are, are comfortable. There's healthcare, there's doctors, there's wisdom, there's knowledge, there, there's wonderful things to let you live a great comfortable life, much more so than 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 years ago, much more so than in most of the places around the world. So we're playing with house money, and we forget the stakes that we're actually playing with. And the danger of playing with house money is that you don't realize when you've crossed over from house money into your own. You're like, oh, I'm, I'm up, you know, a thousand, I'm down a thousand. Well, it doesn't matter. It's not even my money. So I'm invested in this game. I'm having a good time. I'm playing with house money. And then before I know it, I'm in debt. Before I know it, the time has gone too far. I've pushed this beyond where it should. And the stakes are my life. The stakes haven't changed this whole time. What I've been gambling with, what I'm trying for, is gone. I'm afraid that we've overlooked the lost and the least for the close and the comfortable. Somebody who looks like me, but you know, maybe slightly less aware. We pour our resources into trying to get them to rush into the crowd. and That's good work, but it's this hard work. And I believe in attraction as a means of evangelism. I, I really do. But I'm afraid that this is often coming from the opposite end. Sometimes we need to focus on the wrong end of the crowd in that stadium. The people who are, are facing death, the people who know what's at stake and need help. And need help so that we're not competing with excitement or ignorance. What's our job, church? What is our responsibility? Do we know? Do we get our responsibility? Do we understand it? Do we care about it? If we do evangelism to the people in the front, let's talk about how expensive it is. Do you know how costly it is? Not expensive, but how costly it is to evangelize to people in the front. It could cost you your own life. It's so hard. Those who are struggling to breathe cost you your comfort, cost you where you're at costs you your peace of mind, you know, to, to be around those who are struggling. 
I don't want to make light of this tragedy because I hope that paying these, these actions in an eternal light actually gives respect to the victims. I told Karis this week that there's a reason that our family is different than maybe some of her friends. You know, sin's not a game. We don't manage it. You don't make peace with it. The wages of sin is death. A phrase that, that we've used in the church leadership circles for a while is that we, we look for the ready and the repentant. The ready and the repentant. Those who are already feeling the press of the crowd, those who are already beginning to panic, those who are not so steeped in sin that they've given in to despair or malice or anger, those who are fully aware of what's coming and they know that they're in a place where they need to do something about it. There's this sweet spot where it just seems that, that people get it. That spot, it seems, is rich. Jesus never wasted his breath trying to convince somebody that they were a sinner. You notice that? He never engages in these debates about what made sin, what constituted sin, and what didn't. He never went to convince somebody that they were a sinner. He showed up. They were convicted. <laughs> he spoke the truth. They were convicted. They knew they were a sinner. They were ready and repentant. They, they were already responding to the work of the Holy Spirit. Or what? Or he moved on. They move, he moved on. He said, Come follow me. Oh, I want to first bury my father. I got to first take care of my things. And he moved on. He didn't waste his breath in trying to engage them in some debate about what makes sin and what doesn't. And the church has been so distracted in trying to convince people that sin is a problem for them. That we're missing people where they know that, oh, yes, I know my sin's a problem. And we're spending resources and time trying to convince people to turn away from this crowd. Don't rush down there. It's incredibly expensive and costly. And there's good kingdom work to be done. I don't like fear as a motivator. I don't. But I was compelled by fear at first. Death terrified me. Hell terrified me. Eternity terrified me. And Christ attracted me, and that seemed better. But sometimes that's just lacking perspective. Because the reality of what we're engaging with, the reality of the story, the thing is, church, we're prone to distraction. We're prone to, to forget. We're tempted to fall asleep, to be like those virgins with their wicks. Christ warned us, stay alert. Remember. So why do we call people to repent? Because they're just dirty sinners? Because... It's a more attractive offer, the carrot or the stick. It's really both at the same time. It's really both at the same time. The both and of this is heaven and hell. That We use, we call to all people with all means we have so that we might save some, as the gospel talks about. And I think that we've separated in our minds the, these groups of people, the, the well-intentioned sinner, you know, who just needs to be shown a better way. You know, you're, they're not really bad or, or wicked. They just need to be shown a, a, a better way. And then we have the, the dirty sinner, you know, the, the person who needs shame and humiliation to, to be brought to repentance. And in welcoming the sinner, if we, if we don't see something to satisfy our need for vengeance, for justice, then we're afraid that justice is failing us. Because we know that, that justice needs to have its day. We, we know that, that things need to be aired out here. That's something that made or, or kept us special, is a little less special maybe if it's shared broadly. That was the problem with Jonah and, and John. This thing that made me God's people, if I share that out widely, where's God in that? Because the sinner in those scenarios is almost never us. It's never me. It's one or the other. The well-intentioned sinner deserves the carrot, not the stick. Outstretched arm Jesus is for him or her. And often that well-intentioned sinner sins in ways very similar to me. We dislike the same things. We like the same things. We struggle with the same things. You know, lust is okay, kept in check. And, and, and greed is okay, you know, kept in check. It's not me. I mean, I know people who get cancer. I, I know people who struggle with sin. I, I know people get in car accidents, but that's not me. You know, I'm, I'm able to not pay my insurance this month. I'm, a, I'm able to not put on my seatbelt now because I know that stuff happens, but it doesn't happen to me. We begin this, this false monologue of believing and understanding that this stuff happens to people far away, but not me. It's okay because this, this tragedy is going to befall somebody else, but not me. 
I know people get addicted to alcohol, but not me. I know people have strained family relationships, but, but not us. I know people get divorced, but not me. Nathan, the, the prophet, gave this message well to David in 2 Samuel 12. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle. The poor man had nothing except one little ewe that he had brought. He raised it and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It's like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and he had no pity. Then here we have that man is you. You are the man. Confronted with this idea that somebody else is the sinner, confronted with the idea that somebody else is struggling, the word of repentance comes home. And that we who think that we're safe, we who think that we don't need this message, we who think that we're in the position to save somebody else, get confronted with the reality that we are still people in need of a Savior. That man is you. When John the Baptist gave this evangelical message to the Pharisees and Sadducees who came to him, the message was bear the fruit of repentance. John the Baptist says that this, in those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and crying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who is spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair. He had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do you not think you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees. Every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with, with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn, and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. The stakes didn't shift, but he saw people coming that he had a problem with. And I love that John the Baptist, even with his prejudice, even with his hatred, even with his knowledge that those people are hypocrites, his warning to them is just bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Don't think that you're safe because you have this knowledge. Don't think that you can say, we have Abraham as our father and everything is going to be okay. Don't think everything's fine. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. I'll baptize you now with water for repentance. Bear fruit after that. And in fact, the Holy Spirit, you need to be baptized with the Holy Spirit because of the fruitfulness of your life, where you go from here, what happens with your life, that's going to show the work of God or not. That's going to bear witness to what God has done and is doing. Deathbed conversions are hard. Okay. Deathbed conversions are hard. You never know if you can slip that one in. Just don't. You don't know if you can play with your sin for 15 years and then, whew, repent of that one just in time. I'm forever affected by a letter Jonathan Edwards wrote to his nine-year-old son because I have an eight-year-old daughter who I cannot imagine saying this to. His son was away on a missions trip to the Native Americans at the age of nine, and he wrote this to his son. Always set God before your eyes and live in his fear and seek him every day with all diligence. For he and he only can make you happy or miserable as he pleases. And your life and health and the eternal salvation of your soul and your all in this life and that which is to come depends on his will and pleasure. 
The week before last on Thursday, David died, whom you knew and used to play with. He used to live at our house. His soul has gone into the eternal world. Whether he was prepared for death, we don't know. This is a loud call of God to you to prepare for death. <laughs> you see that they that are young die, as well as those that are old. David was not much very older than you. Remember that Christ said you must be born again or you will never see the kingdom of God. Never give yourself any rest unless you have good evidence that you are converted and become a new creature. We hope that God will preserve your life and health and return you to Stockbridge again and in safety. But always remember that life is uncertain. You know not how soon you must die. Therefore, had need to be always ready. Do we remember the stakes? Or do we think, you know, drink my fill of beer, have some wine. Tomorrow will be just as today. Do we remember the stakes that are played? If I go, do I, have I borne the fruit of repentance in my life? Have I spoken the message to those that need to hear it? Has my life served to those ends at all? Or have I just tried to stay in between those two mountains going to the promised land? Thinking, I'm not so bad, I'm not so great, but I'm, I'll be in the middle. I'm in the middle of the bell curve. It, it'll be okay for me here. The gospel doesn't downplay death and it doesn't avoid talking about it. There's a real note of sobriety we need to take towards repentance. It doesn't take long before we can cast a blind eye to sin until we become active participants. Victims of abuse often become perpetrators of abuse. When you hear blasphemous language, it doesn't tend to take too long until that starts coming out of your own lips. If we want to be fruitful, if we want to be effective, we have to follow the Father. It can't be out of despair. It can't be out of desire to be in the front of the crowd. When God is moving, we have to be able to follow him. When God is speaking a word of repentance to those people who we despise, we have to be willing to speak those words. When he's offering life to those who are near death, we have to have confidence that he can open this fence and breathe life into their lungs. When he's at the back of the line saying, give them a warning, tell them that one person might turn away, then we have to follow him there. We have to follow the Father wherever he calls us, wherever he leads us. We're all of us charged with bearing the fruit of repentance. Repentance, not just saying that it was wrong and trying to do better, but bearing fruit. A thing born out over time. The thing is, church, um, it's not a small thing that we're called to be a church. It's not just for those of us in here. But we are entrusted with the gospel. With, with power. <laughs> like, how, how can we not be evangelical in our very nature? How can we be so comfortable with the gospel? How can we be so comfortable with a holy God that we just try to stay neutral? Are we willing to actually let the gospel do what the gospel does, to convict sin, to call people back from death, or does it just make us too uncomfortable to do that? Because it will. Somebody going to a football game doesn't want to be told you're a sinner going to hell. Somebody who, who's saying, give me my fill of beer and, and, and wine and tomorrow's going to be better than, than today. Nobody wants to hear at that point in time, you must turn. Death awaits you there. The stakes are high. We didn't create the stakes. They've always been the stakes. I think we forget them. If anything today, if anything today you hear, just be reminded. This isn't a game. We're not trying to get people to, to just sign on to our team. We're not trying to, to build a, a following or, or, a, or a, a group of like-minded individuals. There's real need for what we do here. And yes, attraction works, and yes, fear works. But all we really need to do is follow the Father. There is going to be people this week that you are going to come across that are stuck in the throes of sin. 
that have despair and death nipping at their heels. Just maybe you've been placed in their life. Just maybe you're going to cross paths with them. Not as happenstance, not as coincidence. But because you actually have a message of life and salvation that they need. They might not know that they need it. So what do we do? Do we prepare ourselves to give them that message whenever that time comes? When God stirs, when God speaks, are we ready? Are we prepared? Are we just trying to get through another week? Just trying to build our own lives? Just trying to avoid death ourselves? If there's somebody you want to pray for, if there's some intercession you want to take, we'll join you with that. If there's conviction you feel and you need to repent from, we'll pray for you up front. I'm going to pray for us now. We'll worship and we'll, we'll dismiss. But I do hope that this week you will be on the lookout. Well, there's no malice in that crowd, there is an enemy that wants to steal, kill, and destroy quite good at that too. Lord, we want to, don't want to treat your words <laughs> loosely. We want to see the gospel aired out. Salvation for those in need. Father, it's so glorious to remember that, that Christ assumed we all know, of course, there's a place in heaven for us. Your goodness is never in question. Your mercy is never in doubt. Father, we repent where we have not been faithful. Where we have been silent, Father, give us boldness. Where we ourselves are that man, where we ourselves have not borne the fruit of repentance. Father, help. Guide us guide us daily. Church, I pray that you'll be equipped with words, that you'll be equipped with grace, be equipped with perspective. I bless you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit to be bearers of this gospel message. In the name of Jesus.